You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. And, oh my God, we seem to be very popular at the moment. Really? Well, in other words, I think I mentioned that we hadn't had many emails lately a couple of weeks ago, and now we've just been inundated with emails. Basically, you've been begging everyone to send us emails. Uh, yeah, we've even got one from Lee, which is how bad things have got. Oh dear. <laughs> You're not including the spam ones we get, are you? What? No, Mark, we don't get spam emails. We only get nice oh, okay. emails. Oh, okay. Um, here's one from Scott Boswell. Hi, Blue Boxers. Just, yeah. Just listened to the latest podcasts, enjoyable as ever. I do have to point out a cultural difference in terms. X-rated movies in the States mean only one thing, hardcore porn. <laughs> so hearing... <laughs> So hearing JR describe the Hinchcliffe era as X-rated movies for children, I felt like screaming, <laughs> no, before you were swarmed by police and squads of social workers. Just wanted to warn you before the bobbies come knocking. Take care. And that was from Scott Boswell. Mm. Well, <clears throat> maybe uh, uh, maybe the X-rated movie then is something Stephen Moffat's a bit more keen on. Hmm... Stephen Man I'm not saying anything. Okay. <laughs> Steve from Manchester writes, Gentlemen, I've now finalised my elaborate plans for safeguarding my enjoyment of the 50th anniversary episode when it's broadcast on the 23rd of November. I've right. cleared my calendar for the whole weekend. I intend to disconnect my phone an hour before the show starts. I've soundproofed the entire house. I've replaced the fuses in all the plugs around the house. I've even installed a generator in the cellar in case of power cuts. So come on, guys. What plans have you all made for the 23rd of November? For <laughs> safeguarding against any distractions from enjoying Doctor Who along with the rest of the nation. All the best. Steve from Manchester. Simon, would well, you I'm, like to answer Simon, that? Simon, have you got anything well, on? I've buggered that one right up, haven't I? I am getting married. That's not how I would choose I... to describe this event. No. Well, we don't know, Mark, and we don't really want to know, do we? It, it seemed like a good idea at the time, getting married on the 23rd of November. On Doctor Who's 50th birthday? Yes. Because obviously, as a Doctor Who fan with lots of friends who are Doctor Who fans, you obviously thought to yourself, what's the date that most of my friends will have clearest in their diary? <laughs> yeah, well, you... I'm just hoping it's going to be on early enough that you'll be able to get over to the do afterwards. But we're having a midnight showing. We're showing it, watching it a bit later. That's oh, all. okay. On the big screen. Are we yes. going to talk about your wedding plans now on the podcast? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robert Mamoni 
says, Regarding the Season 22 podcast, just listen to this today. Helped clarify my thinking on Baker's first season. While I have all the pity in the world for the way he was treated, and no matter how good or bad he may have been in the role, his first full season is such a middling, muddled affair as to be really depressing. Enjoyed the back and forth between JR and Simon. Not overly condemnatory of the season, but more a weary sense of a missed opportunity on each story. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? I think we did well there, really. If it, if it's listenable, I think we did well. Mm. Um, oh, this is good. You'll like this. This is from Al, also on the, about the same podcast. Dear and the boys and JR, Today's commute was made was being made bearable by the Blue Box podcast vivisecting season 22. I was striding purposefully to miss my train, nodding along to the idea that Doctor Who magazine was vastly superior to the TV show it was based on during the season in question. Grinning at strangers because John Ridgway got a name check, and then it all goes sayward. Alan Barnes Ooh. didn't write Voyager. It was Steve Parkhouse who casually churned out excellence month after month. The correction was swift, but I'd already disgraced myself. A point that's then made a subject of merriment, as though it was <laughs> planned or set up or being filmed or something. It was a meta moment, I can tell you. I was so enraged at my response that I've subscribed to the podcast in protest. Hooray. Keep up the good work. Paranoidly yours, Al. Written in green ink throughout, he says. Uh, which is odd, as soon as it turned up as an email, but let's just pass by that for a moment. <laughs> I think I've said it before, but I do think that the Strip for Action documentaries are the best thing on the DVDs by far. <clears throat> They're my favourite thing of all the extras. They are the best. I made a point of just sitting and watching them all because I think they're all there on YouTube. And I just watched oh, really? them all. You mean you, you don't watch them on... purchase the DVDs? I watch them all. Yeah. You watch them all on your legally purchased DVDs is what you mean. I've got... Do you know what? I've got them all on legally purchased DVDs. It's just easier to find the... You prefer to watch them on low-res YouTube. Well, no, it's just easier <laughs> while you're working to have them playing on the monitor. And then you don't have to get one DVD after another. Oh, all right, I'll give you that. So there you go. Bit lazy, but yeah, I'll give you that. Okay, fair uh, My favourite um, of the extras is Doctor Forever. I think that is a brilliant series. Which one's that again? The Doctor Forever. Yeah, it's the one looking at kind of the history of Doctor Who through its sort of external ephemera sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. So you had one on the uh, merchandise, the toys. You had one on the books. You had um, the Wilderness Years, and then when it came back, and they even put the whole of Scream of Shalka on a DVD all by itself. Yeah, mm. <laughs> that's overkill, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shame they couldn't manage it for Curse of Fatal Death, but there you go. Mm. Well, it could have been um, a double, double DVD, couldn't it, really? Yeah, well, well, too late now, missed opportunity. I presume there were uh, legal issues uh, because it, that came out on VHS, but... I got it a year or so ago on iTunes because mm. they had uh, this thing for um, comic relief where they were yeah. you could download it and it would contribute towards it. Yeah. Mm. But would have been nice to have it on a disc with extras and such. Yeah. Uh, on the season 22, from the great intelligence, this turned up on Gallifrey Base, but I thought it was nice, so I decided I'd uh, 
I'd include it amongst our emails. Great Intelligence says, Thanks for the Season 22 retrospective. Great. Your agreed order of best to worst couldn't have been more different to my own, and it did occasionally sound like we were listening in on a phone conversation with Lee watching ITV. But joking... <laughs> <laughs> That's the one where he just sat on the sofa and randomly ignored us all evening. He did. He did, bless him. I heard that one, yeah. I listened to the uh, the eighth Doctor one. That was quite good. Mm. But but joking aside, I thought the content was terrific with an optimistic approach to an often nasty, bad taste in the mouth set of stories. Uh, I'll just quickly flick through, and I'm not being. Oh yeah, there's another one on season twenty-two as well. Oh my lord, this is a long one. Okay, so we'll do this one, and then we'll go into tonight's subject, shall Mm. we? Okay. This is from Ben from Indiana. He says, hello, Blue Boxers. In your latest podcast on season 22, you read an email. Oh, no, it's not actually about season 22, or maybe it will. Uh, We'll carry on and find out. There seems to be a consensus that uh, the season 22 episode was very good, um, and that's probably because I wasn't on it. Neither you nor Lee. It was basically a (laughs) two-hander between me and Simon. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. High five. I think... yeah, we do that over yeah. uh, Skype. I think there's a consensus, though, that three people is the optimum number for podcasting. So Possibly. So it might not be necessarily about who was there, Mark, mm. but about the fact that there weren't too many voices to be heard. Maybe, maybe. It's funny, isn't it? Because we both, I think we we entered that podcast with trepidation and we left it with even even more regret <laughs> it really you know we thought oh my god what was that oh well we've done it now we've got season 22 out of the way but if it was quite popular we obviously did quite well at oh mil- no milking uh, i it. had i had no trepidation whatsoever i had plenty to say about season 22 really yeah Mm. Uh, Ben from Indiana Hello Blue Boxers In your latest podcast on season 22 You read an email discussing the merits of two part stories With cliffhangers Such as The Empty Child and The Satan Pit And whether they would work as well If edited down as single episodes How much impact does a cliffhanger actually have? It got me thinking I should end this email on a cliffhanger Just to see if it raises the overall quality of my correspondence (laughs) Anyway, back to my letter. As you guys pointed out, the one huge plus that a multi-part story affords is the time to show wonderful character moments. But I would argue that while nice in theory, it doesn't always equal an overall good thing. For example, since you were discussing Colin Baker's first season, let's take a look at my personal least favourite Doctor Who episode of all time, The Two Doctors. As it stands, The Two Doctors is a three 45-minute monstrosity that tears apart and stomps on the drama and poignancy of the second Doctor's overall story arc, as established in 1966 through 1969. Right, but what if The Two Doctors had been edited down into a modern single-episode 45-minute story? Why, we would lose all sorts of charming character moments, such as the mesmerising scene where Shockeye eats a live rat. And we'd probably have to lose the magical scene where Jacqueline Pierce embraces her true alien heritage and licks blood from the ground. And it goes without saying that we'd probably cut out all the inspiring moments where Sontarans Stike and Val talk exciting war strategy and justify their appearances in the story. We would lose the heartwarming scene where Oscar is stabbed to death in a restaurant and then dies while quoting Shakespeare, all while the rest of the board patrons go on eating. And we'd have to lose the side-splittingly hilarious scene where Shockeye is tenderising Jamie's meat, explaining that he doesn't feel pain and tastes better if flayed alive. 
I mean, wow, we would even have to lose the memorable scene where the second Doctor and Perry talk Dastari out of his evil plans and bring him back to the good side. Oh wait, sorry, that was cut out. We would lose the cheerful death of Shockeye, thanks to wise-cracking Doctor and his trusty cyanide. Oh wait, Eric Saywood would totally have fought to keep that in. So you see, all the extra character moments that a multi-part multi story give us really is... Oh, sorry guys, wait a second, someone is ringing my doorbell. Sorry, it sounds important. Hang on a second, I'll be right back, just let me open the door and... Oh, oh, oh no, oh my god, what are you doing? Stop, please don't! And it sort of finishes there. Oh dear. That, that would be his cliffhanger in question. Mm. Uh... Right, there's loads more emails we'll get back to them at the end of the podcast if we have time lee couldn't be here tonight but he sent us something so i will read that out as by way of introduction to tonight's subject which i was about to say would be a nice surprise for the listeners apart from the fact that it would have said so in the title of the podcast when they downloaded it as you pointed out before thanks mark <laughs> there is that you spoil my fun not always uh... Lee says, what a fine selection of stories. I always loved Mac Hulk's book, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. And in this case, finally watching the TV version as a repeat on cable, I wasn't disappointed, which was the opposite experience with Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Colony, to me, was the weakest, just because it was a little dull, but it was still enjoyable enough to watch. Lee's emails are always so worthwhile. <laughs> he carries on. He seemed to like building believable worlds. Colony and Frontier, for instance. His intergalactic races and politics are fleshed out well. Maybe Neil Gaiman needs to take note after his silver nightmare. But even on Earth... But even on Earth, his underground world of the Silurians still have a hierarchy, class system, and real character monsters. He does Earth stories well with plenty of action. Sea Devils, Ambassadors, and Sea Devils. Uh, yeah, nice one, Lee. And for some reason, <laughs> and for some reason, his involvement really makes these stories watchable. Loved his books and rate him very highly indeed. And so, Mark, that would mean yes. tonight's subject is the Incredible Hulk. That's correct. Can we call it Incredible Hulk, please? What the uh, name of the, the podcast? Episode. No, it's yeah. Hulker. Oh. Yeah, he's got an E on the end, Mark. He has. Hulk, he was Hulk Nobody knows is that. that. A, Sorry. That's a Margie Smith thing, is it? Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah, Malcolm Hulka! Yeah. <laughs> that was... All that goodwill we built up with season 22 episodes all gone. <laughs> that no. was one of the worst impressions no. I've like ever heard. I would like to think that our listeners, at least some of them, appreciate the fall. Appreciate mm. the fall? Yes. Well, that may, might very well be the case, but they might not necessarily appreciate your really <laughs> bad impressionation of Mark E. Smith. Uh, well. Uh, Malcolm Hulk. Mm. Yes. He would have been 90 next year. Oh, would he? Yeah, I was, I was looking up details about him, and I'm, yeah, he would have been 90 next year. And did you find out that somebody's currently in the process of putting together a book about him? Yes, Milk Publications, I believe. And the author you mean was... Milk? You milk. said Milk, yeah, not Milk. No, I said Milk. You didn't say milk. milk. You said Milk. Oh, my God. Like this a podcast is doomed before it's even started. No, it's not. Um, I don't know whether to talk about Malcolm Hulk 
as an author first and talk about the kind of themes of his stories or just start talking about the stories and see where that takes us i think that's probably the best thing don't you just one little bit of enthusiasm before we start looking at the stories that he wrote yes nearly everyone is considered a classic of some sort isn't it a classic uh, a classic among classics i think when you look at them there's not one there that you sort of think oh god that was a load of pants i know some people think that of ambassador to death but i don't and colony in space really and invasion of the dinosaurs Oh, but yeah, but I think the problems with that are more down to the effects, exactly. Yeah, lacking in the the story writing. Oh yeah, but there's also a school of thought that say, for instance, Frontier in Space is just a boring six episodes of getting captured and escaping. Uh, I love Frontier in Space. Well, you know, we'll get to Frontier in Space, but I don't. You know, it's not necessarily that everybody thinks they're all classics. As if you're inclined towards liking that kind of character drama, Doctor Who, you're probably going to appreciate these better. Mm. Mm. Besides, where are we starting? Go on then. Uh, I guess it's probably the faceless ones. It, it, if we're talking about his TV work. Yes, the faceless ones, which he wrote with David Ellis. Well, now. I'm not sure who the senior writing partner on that story would be, Malcolm Hulk or David Ellis, because is there really a lot of Malcolm Hulk in the Faceless Ones? I mean, I watched a recon the other day yeah. of that, and it there weren't that many, because he does tend to have the, the similar themes running through a lot of his stories. There's a couple in there. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, David Ellis, pro- perhaps, I'm not sure how established Malcolm Hulk was back then, but I would I would imagine... I he, wasn't he responsible for Pathfinders, which was like a sort of prototype Oh, yeah, I haven't done before... my research on this. Okay. I should have, shouldn't I? Yeah. I should have. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he wrote for that. Well, I should just let you two talk which about Sydney it. Which was Newman's space thing before he started to do Doctor Who. The big thing in The Faceless Ones is there's no baddie. And that is quite a significant feature of most of Malcolm Hulk's work, isn't it? Mm. There's never anybody who's working, except, of course, when he has to include something like the Master. Yeah. But other than that, there's never ever anybody who's working purely with evil intentions, some, so much as being misguided. Yeah. And the Faceless Ones is exactly the same. They're alien race in question. They're not kidnapping people with any evil intent, they're kidnapping people because they need the bodies in order to survive as a species, don't they? Mm. I think something he did particularly well, which I'm not sure that many other people really got a grasp of, was making characters that were believable and had their own kind of motivations. And we're not just talking about the the bog-standard hero characters, we're talking about the aliens or monsters or whatever they were as well. Yeah, okay, Mark, you move on to the second point while I've just brought up the first for us to discuss. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, that is the other thing as well. He doesn't... Not only does he not have baddies as such, but yes, Hmm. he also tries to write most of his characters with a kind of an honesty and an integrity and so his his characters tend to be more believable as real people than you often get with most other writers i mean look at robert holmes for all that robert holmes wrote brilliant stories with lots of witty dialogue he did write 
caricatures and archetypes rather a lot. Whereas Malcolm Hulk's yeah. stories are pretty much the other way around, really. And in fact, that's we will get to John Pertwee in a minute, but that is the dichotomy of the John Pertwee years. On the one hand, you've got Robert Holmes writing these cartoon romps, almost, mm-hmm. with these caricatured characters. And then on the other hand, you've got Malcolm Hulk, Malcolm Hulk writing fairly stately, realistic, character-driven stories where the sort of sci-fi content is almost irrelevant a lot of the time. Mm. Which is particularly the case, actually, with The Ambassadors of Death, which wasn't even his story, but that he worked on. But we'll come to that in a minute. I mean, the faceless ones, we can only see two of the six episodes, so we don't really Mm. get a true flavour of the story. But do, do we like it? Do we think it was much good? I thought it was pretty decent when I watched the recon. Uh, then again, I'm a sucker for Patrick Troughton, so I watch pretty much anything with him in it. Even the Crotons. Well, yeah. <laughs> Simon, you any thoughts on the... God, any thoughts? Um, have you seen it recently enough to have any thoughts? Oh, a couple of years ago, I watched the um, the ones on Lost in Time. Mm. Um, I love the way it starts. I have to say, I like the way it leads straight on from the previous story. I like that. <laughs> And a story that was broadcast about a year before as well, actually. Oh, was it? <laughs> well, it's the set on the same day as the War Machines. Yeah, because oh, of course, it's, yeah. Because Polly and Ben come back on the same day that they left, don't they? That's right. So that's do you think right. that's intentional? No, no. I don't, think, I don't think they were thinking, oh, we must set this on the same day and then look, two alien invasions at the same time. I think the thought... you got the whole thing within in the war machines. The doctor says, "Oh, I've got this feeling that I only get when Daleks are around," because the one that follows on from the faceless ones is the evil of the Daleks, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think they were planning that far ahead, Mark. I really don't. In my own little mind, I'd like to think they were. Do you know what happened? <laughs> is they thought, "Oh, we're always joking that the doctor could put you back on Earth at exactly the same moment as he took you away because it's a time machine." Hmm. So why don't we do that? And then they did that. And it's probably only afterwards that they probably thought, oh, bugger, that means we've got all these alien invasions taking place at the same time. <laughs> oh, well, too late now. <laughs> well, that's got to be it, hasn't it? I like the idea of them all running around at the same time. I think it's a great yeah, idea. I like that. Oh, I like that. well, I don't think anybody would seriously have sat down and thought to themselves, oh, that would be a great idea. I wonder, actually, if you went through those three stories, if you couldn't have... I'm sure you must have. Because uh, they're all... Well, obviously, they're all partly set in London. No, there really couldn't be Daleks and War Machines and Faceless Ones all in London at the same time. I know the Faceless Ones are at the airport just outside, but you know what I'm saying? No, it's just daft. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God. Yeah. A Dalek met a War Machine. Imagine that. Yeah. Call yourself a robot. Oh, what another wonderful impression from Simon well, Brett. You're on fire tonight, I haven't got Mister. my... What's it called? Mooga Fuga. I haven't got my Mooga Fuga set up. Is that your pet name for Lee? Ask Nicholas Briggs what a Mooga Fuga is. Oh, Simon, I know what you're talking about. I'm just having a little joke with you. Oh, uh, the War Games. Oh yes. yes. Well, that's his, I'm aware of that one. Again, that well, that's his next story, and again, that's mm. a co-written. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but as a, a writer, we're, we're here to talk about him as a writer, really. So, yeah, as well as being all right, 
What are the sort of Mac Hulk elements in there? Because how much was that? How much of that was Malcolm Hulk? How much was Terence Dix? There was a years ago when I was growing up. There was a a myth around that story that they wrote alternate episodes mm. uh, with Terence Dix writing a cliffhanger for uh, Malcolm Hulk to get out of, and vice versa. Mm. It worked, didn't it? If it if that did happen, well, <clears throat> it's consistent. If that is it the is. case. <clears throat> it's very consistent. It doesn't sound like two different voices at all, does it? It doesn't, not at all. Um, I don't think. I've... I think Terence Dix talks about using a loop story where you'll have the Doctor and the companions captured, then they <coughs> escape, then they run down lots of corridors, then they get captured again, and they're back to where they were before, and it's used up sort of ten minutes of screen time. I think that gets employed quite a lot, but not in an unsatisfactory way. Mm. Mm. Well, that's. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of base level of a multi-part Doctor Who story, particularly back mm. in those days, isn't it? That's pretty much what you had to do to fill up the time. Yeah. We've spoke about this before. We've spoken about... I mean, it could have dragged, you know, you've got a ten-part story that's had to be sort of thrown together at relatively last minute. Um, but I love it. I think it's such a great it's little... It's meaty, isn't well, it? Big story. It really is. And yeah. I don't think there's another story that's... So... Considering it's ten episodes long, it sucked me in completely when i watched it on vhs i've said this before in a previous pod that uh i sat down on a weekend afternoon I'd, my friend at college had lent it to me and i sat down and i watched episode after episode after episode mm. and obviously that isn't the way it was originally intended but i was sucked in that much that i just watched the whole thing and when it got to the end it was like oh well it's very light <laughs> but why is that particularly then do you think I think it goes back to what you were saying before about the the way that he wrote the characters and yeah. Yeah, those extra sort of levels to them, particularly you look at the war chief and the warlord. And they're, although they could be sort of construed as sort of relatively two-dimensional characters, well, they have got their own sort of uh, reasoning behind what they do. I think there's a lot of Terrence Dicks in there. I think a lot of those characters are very Terrence Dicks by way of Malcolm Hulk. They're the kind of... Because Terrence Dicks really really was into writing very sort of light and fluffy characters who are there to do a job and you can and you know there's not much of them beyond what you see on screen they're like Terence Dick's characters in the war games fleshed out with a bit of what Malcolm Hulk brought to it and do you think some of that's also down to the actors as well well you know it's always brought to it yeah it's always down to the actors and what they brought to it but you know they're great actors in all kinds of stories I mean some great moments I know we're supposed to be talking, focusing more on the, the writing side, but when you've got um, the war chief, I always get the war chief and the warlord mixed up. When he has that moment of recognition with the second doctor, uh, they don't even have to sort of say it out loud. You just get that sort of real sense that they know each other from way back. That's very cool. And Philip Maddock just blows everyone else away. He's just awesome in that story. Mm-hmm. Well, I've. Yeah, I think uh, almost everybody in that story is great. And there's a real sense of... Well, you know what I was saying just now about them being Terrence Dick's characters by way of Malcolm Hulk. But there's also, and this is really weird and it shouldn't work, but it does, there's also a real sense of all the characters having come from different stories. And usually when you say, oh, all these actors are playing it like they're playing in different stories... That doesn't help. That doesn't help it work. That usually fights against the story 
But in this instance, perhaps because it's so long and perhaps also because of what the story is, because mm. it is almost like... It suits the structure. It's like a these... collage. And so, yeah. and so to have all these different elements come together as part of the collage, it almost feels like part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Mark, I cut you off there. Were you going <laughs> to... Oh, no, I was just going to say what you said, really. You know, you've got all these various elements and they all sort of come together and you've got these random sort of armies and stuff that shouldn't really relate to each other, but that whole juxtaposition works really well. Right, I think before we move on, we should get another email in, shall we? Before we move yeah, on to it. John Pertwee. If we must. Oh, Mark, you love a bit of it. <laughs> I bet these are probably your favourite Pertwee stories, really, aren't they? Um, yeah, well, well, we'll come to that in a minute. Okay, that's a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, gentlemen, if you ever want definite confirmation that Sean Connery can't act, seek out a 1961 film called On the Fiddle, Your Toes Will Curl. <laughs> After the shock of the Season 25 podcast not giving me anything to disagree with JR about, the Season 22 podcast was a return to form. JR, <laughs> mm, JR was absolutely wrong about the Dr. Drowning cliffhanger in The Deadly Assassin being a shock which you shouldn't leave children with for seven whole days. It would, of course, have been six whole days plus two fractions of a day. Ooh, pedantic. Yeah, well, that's as much as he could find to disagree with me about. Um, oh, oh, this is from Doc Hume. He says, The milk's boiled over, Mrs. Bridges' reference, in my email about Revelation of the Daleks, which went over your heads. Do you remember? We didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. Referred, of course, to Ruby, the kitchen maid in Upstairs Downstairs, who was constantly being berated by the cook. Not only was this Jenny Thomason's only other acting role of note, but she uses exactly the same whining voice as she uses for Tass and Beaker. How you guys missed an obvious TV history reference like that is beyond me. For the love of... I'm kicking myself now. Well, I know. For the love of God, guys, get yourselves a cultural hinterland. All the best. Doc <laughs> Hume, a.k.a. Castellan Spandex. Oh, Christ. <laughs> oh, I couldn't, That's not a pleasant couldn't thought. stand upstairs, downstairs when I was a kid. Couldn't stand it. I blotted it out of my brain. That's why it didn't occur to me. Sarah Kingdom. What? G Marsh? Yeah, yeah she wasn't wearing a cat suit, though, no. was she? Uh, no, she. Well, yeah, okay. Simon was more enough. of a Duchess of Duke Street man, weren't you, Simon? Oh, no, I hated that as well because it meant that Doctor Who <laughs> finished. Because so. it was on no. after, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Oof, even that depressing music. <clears throat> Shall we move on to the Silurians? Go on. I think it's probably a good idea. And the... You mean Doctor Who and the Silurians? Oh, oh dear, yeah. don't. Oh, pedant. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's sort of anti-pedantry, really, because, he, well, Mark's been a pedant by saying it should be called that, but, of course, it's the fact that the production team weren't pedants that meant it was called that, Yeah, because nobody spotted it when somebody accidentally put it on the screen, and there it was to stay for the rest of time as the only Doctor Who story that they bollocksed up the title that badly with. <laughs> but there you go. That's Barry Letts' first story in charge as producer. Ish. Mm. I think he came in midway during, actually, but his name's on all the credit for all of the episodes. The Silurians, Malcolm Hulk. Um, we're just going to say the same thing again, really, aren't we? <laughs> great mm. characters, great motivations. <laughs> I think it's quite, 
I think it's quite cool that you've got this sort of two factions between the Silurians rather than just having cardboard cutout characters. You've got this very sort of political setup between the, the various members of the Silurian group. And I think that's just gives it an extra level. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, actually, it'd be easier to come back to the Silurians and talk about things like that when we get to the Sea Devils. Because, well, these are two stories. This one and the next one are two stories. Well, one of them's got Malcolm Hulk's name on. The other one hasn't, of course, from season seven. And this is kind of, well, we're always saying this, aren't we? Great season. Probably rather dull if you were there at the time. Because it's 21 weeks of pretty much the same thing once you get into the Silurians and up to Inferno. But very strong scripts, very strong very strong stories, very strong characters in all three stories. Mm. They all feel like they come from the same place, obviously. And to my as a Pertwee skeptic, this is probably my favourite Pertwee season. Well, yeah, because it's the least Pertwee. <laughs> I suppose there is that. Yeah. In fact, it's the least Doctor Who, to be honest. It's just mm. Quatermass with John Pertwee instead of you know Professor Bernard, isn't it really? Hmm. <laughs> Pretty much, mm. particularly um, ambassadors. Well, I'd say Inferno as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And uh, Silurians messing around in caves, uh, alien civilization yeah. from the dawn of oh, time, yeah, as it were. <laughs> That's very much quite a mass in the pit, really, isn't it? Of course, we can link this back to the conversation we had Eighth Doctor, where I was saying about it would make quite a good American episode, with the idea of uh, uh, what I, th I like so much about it is. Native Earthians. Yes, exactly. And and the, the humans all going, you know, well, not really knowing how to react to it, apart from with aggression, which is obviously symbolised in the Brigadier. Um, of these and people's... that's just what we do. Yeah, yeah. People turning up saying, well, actually, we were here first. I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow you up. <laughs> yeah. Then tonight, Simon, you will be Lee. <laughs> Uh, really? I thought I was making a valid point then. Oh, it's not about <laughs> the making a valid point. It's about the, uh, the voices. vocal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. I don't know. The Silurians. Uh, yes, Mark makes a very good point about the aliens. I'm using the word aliens here in inverted commas because that's what they're standing in for, really, the Silurians. And yeah. Having a civilization wherein there are factions and you can think of you know it gives them a reality and a depth yeah, makes you believe in them mm, mm. which is very much not the case when, when we you get consider to the, the costumes that's pretty good going oh, yeah really. but that's very much not the case when we get to the sea devils we'll come to that and talk about it slightly more in a moment but that's brilliant and you know what that reminds me of that reminds me of what Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes brought to Doctor Who in the mid-70s because many, many of the Barry Letts stories and the stories that preceded Barry Letts are just about races of monsters where you just have, you know, the Daleks. They're all exactly the same as one another. There might as well be one as 50 for all the conversation and for all the depth of character as you get. And the Centerites. Mm. Oh, yeah. But here's Malcolm <laughs> Hulk doing something completely different. And what Malcolm Hulk's done is he's just written a story about people. It's just that some of those people happen to be reptilian in nature. But they're very much people rather than 
you know, generic aliens. Mm, mm. Uh, well, there's a bit in the target novelization of the Doctor and the Cave Monsters where you get the sort of internal You get the whole chapter monologue. from the perspective yeah. of the Silurian, yeah. I think it's really good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, I'm thinking forward then to Terry Nation doing the Android Invasion where you actually get a sense of the same sort of thing with the Kraals. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time Philip Hinchcliffe comes along... You're taking something that Malcolm Holger's done as an innovation, pretty much, in the Silurians. You're taking that almost as standard. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. not going to mention... It becomes a template. Yeah. Almost. I'm not going to mention the Dominators, which did the same Ooh. thing because it didn't do it particularly well. I can actually sit down and watch that. Actually, I love it too. It's sad, isn't it? Hey, it's got Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines and Wendy yeah. Badbury and Brian Cant in it. Who couldn't watch that for fun? Can I exactly. can I just raise uh, an interesting premise? I don't know how true it is. I've read on the web about um, <clears throat> that, that it was originally a Malcolm Hulk story, an early version of. Um, oh God, I've gone blank now. Where anyway, the original where they were going to have the chameleons was originally a Hartnell mm-hmm. story, and it was going to be called the Big Store right. with aliens occupying mannequins in a b- b- yes, department. Yes, that's right. So in theory, does that mean that Malcolm Hulk, or even created the autumn. yes wow mm. Mm. that's interesting because they were all around at the same time those guys yeah yeah it's well malcolm hulk didn't he he was penciled in for the first series wasn't he of doctor who there's a story of his i was doing a little bit of research on the old interwebs called the hidden planet yeah she's supposed to be about a, a sort of twin planet of earth on the other side of the sun so not only did got malcolm hulk create John Pertwee's first story, but also William Hartnell's last. William Hartnell's last one, yeah. <laughs> as well as writing, co-writing Patrick Troughton's last. Mm, yeah. Mm. And yeah, astonishingly, of course, almost all of his work is in the John Pertwee era, and that's what we all think of him as, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Now, The Ambassadors of Death <clears throat> is something completely different. This was a David Whittaker story that had been planned for the second Doctor. Well, can you imagine, actually, the Ambassadors of Death as a second Doctor story? I mean, it would have been completely differently because it went through a lot of script rewrites. Mm. But the second Doctor was really all about the TARDIS crew landing on Earth, aliens trying to invade, base under siege, all this kind of stuff. And even when it did something different, it didn't do anything remotely like the Ambassadors of Death. Except maybe for the invasion. Can you imagine the Ambassadors of Death as a second Doctor story? I can't help. It's interesting to try and think of how it would turn out, but yeah, it's it's quite a different beast from anything <coughs> I can think of that I've seen in, in the Troughton era. The only thing I can think is that they were probably maybe thinking of this at the same time as they were thinking of the invasion and it would have sat alongside that story relatively well. Can you imagine, though, if it had actually been the next story after the invasion, there had been 15 episodes of that, basically? Sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> Except you'd have loved it, because it would have been just like season seven. True. Mm. Anyway, David Whittaker wrote the first draft, and it wasn't working, and nobody quite knew what to do with it, so they gave it to Malcolm Hulk. He wrote a draft, and then Terence Dix wrote a draft, and then the assistant script editor, Trevor Ray, wrote the final draft that ended up on screen. And obviously it's got David Whittaker's name on it, and obviously he's the one who has the least left to do with. But there's a lot of Malcolm Hulk in there. It feels like a Malcolm Hulk story, doesn't it? Yeah. 
It's got yeah, definitely. It's got all the sort of character and plot ploys of a Malcolm Hulk story, and there's a lot of escape and capture and escape and capture, particularly with Liz. Indeed, yeah, it's yeah. it's a very Malcolm Hulk story. Um, and it's got a few of his other. He kind of, you know, one of his other things is technology to an extent, or spaceships or mm -hmm. he's kind of well this is famously obviously the sort of what do they call it the um english uh space program what do they call it mark yeah. you'll know what i'm talking about uh there's uh they give it a name don't they it's referenced in yeah, another story as well. yeah but this is you know and you uh, you look at the stories coming up like Colony in Space and Frontier in Space mm -hmm. and also actually Invasion of the Dinosaurs and there's also very definitely a sense with Malcolm Hulk that you know England is at the centre at the forefront of the advancement of technology branching out yeah. into these kinds of areas it's kind of an old fashioned idea and kind of a sweet and cute idea but at the same time it's also kind of slightly dark idea as well because the way he uses it in the stories if you look particularly at colony in space and what happens in that story there yeah uh well i think the other thing about him was he was very politically minded i think he was a paid up member of the communist party i was going to come to that later yeah yeah and i think the colony in space encapsulates a lot of that sort of political leanings that he had Mm. And also slightly uh, sort of the ecological side of things. I know Barry Letts was very into exploring. I actually quite enjoyed uh, Colony in Space. I watched it the other day for this and I hadn't expected a great deal because I couldn't really remember very much of it, but I really liked it. Yeah, Colony in Space, I have to say, I'm not not a fan of that either, to be honest. I have, well, I've got very fond memories. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. <laughs> well, no, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. It's like... Yeah, uh, I mean generally speaking colony in space of all the stories we've got on this list of malcolm hulk's work for doctor who colony it's not a standout. yeah colony in space tends to be the one that most people either forget or disparage in some way it's the least of his work in most people's eyes but actually if you look at it if you look at it for the story it's probably mm. one of the best of his work and it's probably the yeah. production as much as anything that lets it down the aliens are particularly badly realised. And it is yeah. it is the first time in quite a number of years that they've properly gone out into space with Doctor Who. Mm. And it's in colour and 625 lines. And you can't do outer space with a few sets in a studio anymore. So a quarry it is. And you've got is. the leader of the bad guys who's effectively a, a male Margaret Thatcher. Well, yeah. Or is that just me? <laughs> Okay. Is anyway, I was on the subject of the quarry. Mm. Oh, yes. I was just trying to say, what else could you possibly have done? And well... in terms of when they filmed it, you know, it was going to look a bit drab. Mm -hmm. Go on, Mark. You said, well, you were going to come up with another suggestion. No. Well, it was that was the standard thing, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't the standard thing because this was the first time, wasn't it? I mean, uh, well, the Savages had done it, but it wasn't a standard thing. It was we've got this. Assume the Cybermen. We it, it, yes, but you're talking that was four years previous, and the Savage was six years previous, basically. 
Yeah. Yeah, you're talking if we're gonna do a story set in outer space, what are we gonna do? And so I can't fault Colony in Space for looking drab for its production values. Well, I mean, it does fit in with the the idea of the story. Well, I was just about mm. to say that mm. because it, it is that is kind of the theme of the story anyway. That it, there is a logic to it. Yeah, it's supposed to be a planet that they thought they could um, fertilize and make work, turn into a living environment, and they've been failing disastrously. Yeah. So if they'd have filmed it in a forest or you know on a farm somewhere, that wouldn't have worked, would it? No. So it had to be as it was. <laughs> and the thing is, if you want a colourful story, then you don't go to Malcolm Hulk and ask him to write something political like this because this is not going to be a colourful story, is it? I think it's a very interesting um, statement on capitalism. I think it's, um, it works really well on that level. Well, what it says is if you have society... And you have, uh, you know, business and there's a fight between the two over whose rights should take precedence. Business will always win out because that's where mm. the money is. Mm. And, he's not, and he's obviously, very obviously saying that that's not right. But realistically yeah. speaking, and of course, that's where you bring in the doctor, the presence from without to change the status quo. Mm. Has um, have either of you read the uh, novelization recently? Because I haven't read it since I was a kid. No. <clears> so I'm just wondering, you know, obviously they changed the title to the Doomsday Weapon. So was the emphasis of the story altered slightly to focus more on the dramatic side rather than the... Uh... I don't think it necessarily was. I just think when they came to writing the books, they wanted punchier titles. We went into mm. this before, didn't we? Yeah. <clears throat> you can give a story a title like Colony in Space on the telly mm. because in the listings it's going to say Doctor Who and Doctor Who is what you're looking for and you know kind of what you're going to get with Doctor Who. Mm. When you're trying to sell a book, that book's on the shelf next to all the other Doctor Who stories. Mm. So it's not Doctor Who against whatever's on ITV. That's not your choice. It's <laughs> Colony in Space versus, you know, maybe Day of the Daleks. So in order to make Colony in Space something that competes with De Day of the Daleks on the bookshelf, you call it something like, you know... The Doomsday Weapon. The Doomsday Weapon. The Doomsday Weapon. Because yeah. that's got more punch. Yeah, having said that, um, Frontier in Space, I think, is a better title than Space War. I think I would have found that more, yeah, I think more so evocative too. and more romantic and more interesting than... It might be more evocative and romantic and interesting, but they were going for punchy and in-your-face. Space War, right. Okay. Mm, mm. On the shelf, yeah. Frontier ain't quite half as dramatic okay, and so as exciting as war, is it? So why dinosaur invasion instead of invasion of the dinosaurs? Because that be is that too much? I think literally for? just to pull the punch on it just gives it that tiny little bit more punch. Okay. <laughs> what uh, don't you think? Invasion? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Invasion of the dinosaurs. It puts the emphasis on the word invasion. Dinosaur invasion puts the emphasis on the word dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. But we've jumped way ahead. Yeah, Look, sorry. shall we get another email before we get into the Sea Devils? Because this is probably the more... 
I think the Sea Devils is probably the most interesting story in Malcolm Holt's career for reasons that we'll get into. I've just cliffhangered into it now. I'd better not be disappointed after I've read this email. Um, Mark Whiteley says, "Okay, here are a few lines for John Hurt so the viewer can feel comfortable he is playing our beloved Doctor. If we get to see McGann regenerate into Hurt, he can look in the mirror and say, that's the trouble with regeneration. You never know what you're going to get. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow has to be done for him to get the TARDIS onto the Daleks' command ship. Do you remember we asked for people to write in what lines they'd like to hear Capaldi say? Did we? I think we did, didn't we? Oh, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember that. Well, anyway. Hi! Should be delivered whilst attacking Daleks <laughs> on the command ship. Unlimited rice pudding, etc., etc. Once he finally confronts... Does he have to wear a girdle as well? <laughs> we... Whoa. Maybe, who knows? Uh, unlimited rice pudding once he finally confronts Davros after hiding loads of Imperial Daleks. And if this is a Time War episode, surely we'd have to get Davros. Well, that's interesting. That would be the 50th special, maybe. Mm. When I say run, as he is about to fight his way back to the TARDIS after confronting Davros, great balls of fire, as the command ship is destroyed in the jaws of the Nightmare Child... Uh... Jumping Jehoshaphat. <laughs> no, that's... Mm, only when he's doing his impressionations of previous doctors. The one day I shall come back one as he time locks the time war. And uh, there are worlds out there speech as he heads off to the TARDIS kitchen for a cuppa before regenerating. Oh, that's your favourite with the people made of tea bags. Yeah, I know. Thanks. <laughs> Did I say Capaldi? I meant hurt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well. We knew what you meant. Some of my favourites. Cliché, I know. No one will doubt Hurt is the Doctor after those lines, says Mark Wiley. And I'll tell you what, another quick one, because this is from... Oh, no, it's not that quick. It's actually longer. So let's go back to the Sea Devils. Mm. And this is a lot of people's favourite story of these. Probably a lot of people have very fond memories of this from when they were growing up purely based on the visuals don't they yeah i agree agree. as a malcolm hulk story this is probably the weakest of the lot i know it never it's never caught my imagination this story i I looked so much to seeing it um and i'd not seen it before they they showed it on bbc2 didn't they during the 90s was it i think you're right Mm. yeah yeah i think they um and i'd not seen it before then and i was sorely disappointed really mainly because how pathetic the sea devils were they i thought they Looked fairly good in pictures and illustrations, and then and we. I often cards. find that actually. Yeah. Sometimes things that look wonderful in still photographs look terrible when they're in motion. Yeah, and vice versa as well, of course. Mm, a bit like Freeman Regiman. But I'm saying it not uh, ignore the visuals for a moment, and the Sea Devils are particularly badly written. The Silurians we have. All that character development, the different factions. And, you know, one of the Silurians end up killing another one of the Silurians in order to further his own political ambitions and, you know, to get what he wants, essentially. The Sea Devils, you really do have a generic race of aliens. And when one of them starts talking in episode five or six, is it? I'm actually quite shocked because up to that point, they've literally just been you know, dummies for the master to push around in his quest mm. for escape and then subjugation. Ah, mm. mm. uh, the, the, you know, the Sea Devils might as well not be in that story. No. you got Donald Sumter in there, so it's not all bad. There are some good actors in it, but, mm. and I think 
this is the case. You know, in his novels, he often rounded things out so that you could get more of a picture of the characters' motivations and what made them the people they are. I think The Sea Devils is the case when this truly points it up. Because in all the other stories, those character developments he gives are extensions of the characters. In The Sea Devils, they're replacements for the fact that the characters aren't there in the first place. Mm. Always get the sense. Trenchard, the guy who's in charge of the prison. I mean, it's nicely performed. And you can't fault Malcolm Holt for giving him some fairly entertaining dialogue. But he really doesn't feel like a real person. And is it Captain Hart who's in charge of the Navy depot? He just feels like a caricature as well. Hmm. It just, the Sea Devils really sits badly with me in terms of, you know, where it comes in Malcolm Hulk's career. Now, his Doctor Who career. I'm still unclear of what the Sea Devils' motives were. What were they? Take well, over the big Take back the planet, same as the Silurians? I don't, I don't know. Well, I guess so. They get woken up by the Master, don't they? They're just puppets of the Master, really. Right, okay. I mean, yes, obviously, that's what the Master promises them. You can have your planet back. Yeah. But you never... I mean, there are, there are a couple of bits in maybe episode five. I think that's the one in the underwater base, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And just for a moment in episode five, you get a sense of what the story perhaps could have been. But then it all disappears again when it's just, you know, people shooting at each other in episode six. Mm. It just feels like a sadly wasted opportunity. All the good things that he did in the Silurians are just replaced by... It's almost like the Sea Devils is Malcolm Hulk's attempt to do a Robert Holmes. But of course he can't stop being Malcolm Hulk, so it just feels like it sits between those two stools and doesn't really achieve anything. Mm. And then all that's not helped by the awful music as well. Well, yeah. You're back on production now. <laughs> really, we're talking about... I know, I know. I couldn't help but to get that little dig in. But then, he totally... I mean, to my mind, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but he totally redeems himself with his next two stories, doesn't he? Which would be Frontier in Space? Yeah, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. I think, and... You know, the Silurians notwithstanding, Colony in Space notwithstanding, because both of those have got wonderful characters, but I think Frontier in Space and Invasion of the Dinosaurs are probably his two most rounded stories in terms of character and plot and development. I know with Frontier in Space, and this is what everybody focuses on, the escape capture, escape capture, that kind of thing, but actually it starts off with quite an interesting... Well, no, it starts off with a very interesting conceit. And then it layers on top of that another interesting concept. You've got this frontier in space. You've got these two great, you know, intergalactic races at loggerheads on the brink of war. You know, this is obviously a great big metaphor for the Cold War. Mm. But then Mm. on top of that, you bring in a third party who's trying to needle them into that war so he can fill the vacuum that they leave, leave once they wipe each other out. Mm. This obviously being the master at the behest of the Daleks, as it turns out. But actually, that's a really interesting place to come in. And that first episode's actually, it's kind of a quiet first episode. 
kind of feels rather light actually but it introduces all this really interesting stuff and then of course the brilliant thing after that is he doesn't waste it he doesn't throw it away but he develops it and he adds on to it and he takes you through the episodes until when i think it's in either episode five or early in episode six no it must be episode five when you actually get to the silurian planet that's and not the silurian planet yeah the, um Dr- no, 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 not the Ogron planet, the Draconian planet. The Draconian, yeah. Uh, the, from the start of the story, you would be, you if you knew your Doctor Who, you'd been watching for years on end, you would be thinking, probably subconsciously, okay, love this alien race, but we're only ever going to see their, um, you know, their uh, uh, palace on Earth. We're never going to get to see their actual planet. Mm. And then he makes good on the promise. You do get to see their planet. Frontier in Space is a story that pretty much makes good on all the promises it makes. Mm, mm. And then, of course, you get to see the Ogrons, uh, you know, the monster they're scared of. Ah, that's the one. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It makes good on all its promises. And then, even once it's made good on all its promises, it pulls the rug out and throws the Daleks in for good measure. Mm, mm. So not only has it made good on its promises, but it's actually gone beyond even that point. And it's far superior to the planet of the Daleks. Well, it's very different from the planet of the Daleks, <laughs> let's say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Nobody's really... I'm surprised people aren't sort of more interested in getting the Draconians back. Oh, I think there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of love for the idea of bringing the Draconians back. Mm. I think they. I think they tend to get overshadowed by the Zygons as the other great were in one story monster. Yeah. Because Terror of the Zygons is a much more eye-catching story than Frontier in Space. Far inferior story, if you ask me, but a far superior production. Mm. So... Do you think also with the new style Silurians they've kind of taken a little bit of that thunder from the Draconians as well? Yeah. Oh, not necessarily. You you can do something similar, but design it in such a different way. Particularly, I mean, if you bring in things like colour into the design as well, yeah. you can do it differently enough to make it worth it. I think uh, after we've seen the Zygons on screen, I think the Draconians will probably be the next one that the fans start hankering after more. Mm. It would be cool. Well, the makeup would be stunning, wouldn't it? I mean, it was great. great. In the, in the, you know, it's one of the better oh, ones, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's right at the very top. Probably the best, or definitely up there, you know, level with maybe the Zygons. Mm. Terror of the Zygons is a pretty poor story, though, in terms of the plot. And it is basically remembered for the production and the acting and the Zygons. Mm. And I think, if you're going to say that, that probably is not working in the favour of the Draconians because they're sort of one element in a story where all the elements do kind of work. Sorry, just taking a swig of water then and expecting somebody to fill the vacuum. There is is one in Dimensions in Time, isn't there? Isn't there a Draconian there? Oh, probably. We don't count Dimensions. Dimensions in time, Simon. You must be really struggling for something to say if you're bringing that up. (laughs) Of course we count dimensions in time. And then, of course, after Frontier in Space, you get Invasion of the Dinosaurs. 
which I suppose was never meant to be Malcolm Hulk's swan song, but as swan songs go, I think it's not a bad one. In terms of the story, the only thing that lets it down is the dinosaurs, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the effects don't don't help it. But yeah, I think it's a really good story, very strong story. I don't think there's anything else in the production that fails. I mean, you've even got Deserted London, which you don't just see in episode one, but you basically mm. see it throughout episode five as well. Malcolm Hulk's got a thing about episode fives, actually, now that I keep reeling off episode five, don't I? <laughs> Maybe it's just my imagination. I'm getting the episode numbers wrong. But it always seems to introduce something at that point of the story that not necessarily turns the story on its head, but that perhaps plays against what you may have been expecting. For example... I love the whole twist with the... Mm. Uh the spaceship well yeah that's episode four isn't it mm. but i'm saying no i mean yes he'll make a twist so that your idea of what's happening is turned on its head but also he'll mm. do a production twist you know what i was just saying about um frontier in space where a seasoned doctor who watcher would never be expecting to see the draconian's planet yeah. a seasoned doctor who watcher would be expecting most of the you know location stuff the establishing stuff to have been dealt with in episode one and maybe episode two and for the rest of it to pretty much take place indoors and then unlike in planet of the spiders where you got the big chase in episode two in invasion of the dinosaurs it's left till episode five and yes it's padding and yes it's a runaround but it comes late enough in the story that it actually wakes you up as a viewer and I'm not talking about if you're sitting down and watching all six episodes in one sitting. If you're in the fifth week of a six-week story, that's not what you expect the fifth week to be. No. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's Malcolm Holt shaking that up again. Mm. Now, in terms of the twists, the spaceship twist is a brilliant twist. The twist about who's involved and is working as a double agent in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, however... Once you get to your fourth and fifth double agent, it's a bit like Ambassadors of Death in that sense, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Another one of his story tropes. But you know the And again it goes back to the whole communist thing of Well you know, these guys wanted to take us back to a simpler time where everyone's on an even playing field. Is that a reversal? Is he now playing irony against communists where previously he'd been being ironic about capitalists or mm. because well this is what's been said is that these people who want to take the planet back well there's kind of a there's kind of a slightly lefty as well as righty thing going on there isn't there it's not being simple going back to a simpler time and everybody all mucking in together is not as right wing as say very simplified colony in space storyline where it's business versus you know society mm -hmm. in invasion of the dinosaurs it's much more subtle yeah so you know that's one of the other things i kind of like about invasion of the dinosaurs is that instead of plastering in your face you know blue bad red good it mm. kind of it shades it in a little bit more yeah and that, again, that's great. Simon? I like the cover of the Target book. <laughs> and Simon really is playing lead tonight. Clack. <laughs> is it pretty? Do you know what? I haven't watched it in so long. I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety, actually. Invasion of the Dinosaurs, believe it or not. 
So you're talking oh, about really? this twist and that twist. I'm thinking, what twist? What happens in oh, it you again? you really got to sit down and watch that, uh, Simon. I know, I know I have. I know I have. I've been saving up my pennies. I'm not a huge Pertwee fan, but I quite enjoyed watching yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I've even had the book sitting on the shelf and never read it. You know, if the years. dinosaurs had been... If the dinosaurs had been any good, that would be one of the true classics of Doctor Who. I don't really know how they managed to... Obviously, I've seen clips. I don't know how they managed to make them so bad. Well, I, would I you, think they... They could, have, they could have got plastic models from a shop and they would have looked better. Mm. But they, they could have. looked pretty bad, but <laughs> I, I don't know what else they were going to do. Do you remember the dinosaur in The Silurians? Yes. I thought that was more convincing. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. I thought they were both just as bad as one another. Uh, Probably helped by the fact it was in a darkly lit cave rather than out in the middle of the street in the broad daylight. Yeah, that's the that's the real thing about Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Mm. No getting around those models, is there? There is a great extra on the War Games DVD which focuses on Malcolm Hulk's uh, target novelizations, mm. which I would definitely recommend anyone to to have a watch of. There's people like Gary Russell and oh, have and you just completely changed the subject again? Well, no, I just wanted to uh, bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Invasion of the Dinosaurs and again. Invasion of the Dinosaurs or the Dinosaur Invasion is mentioned in there as well. As it would be if it was an extra about Malcolm Hulk's novelizations. Am I not right? I guess. <laughs> okay. Malcolm Hulk then. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, or wiggly thumbs in the middle somewhere. Mark? Absolutely thumbs up. Simon? Yes, it's a, it's a thumbs up for putting a dimension into Doctor Who that wasn't there before. And it's a very much a thumbs up from me too. There's also this thing know, as well on, on the web I noticed about he wrote a pilot for a, um, a Peter Cushing oh, Doctor Who radio mm. series. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, the. Do you not know about this, Mark? No. Oh, well, they actually recorded this, but the recording's been lost. Um, in the late 60s. Ironic. They decided to give it a go. Obviously, it didn't get very far because it was never transmitted. I don't believe it was transmitted. Mm. They decided to bring the Peter Cushing Doctor back. It was a radio series, and they wrote and recorded one episode, and it was Malcolm Hulk that wrote that episode. Doing Doctor Who on audio, that would never take off. Well, yeah. It's a stupid idea, isn't it? But still, rather interesting that they even tried. <laughs> okay, then, should we... Uh, oh, I was going to say, yes, very much a thumbs up for Malcolm Hulk, even though, when it comes to Doctor Who, I do tend to prefer the sort of slightly more frivolous ones. More, I'm more of a Robert Holmes man than a Malcolm Hulk man. But if you're going to watch a Malcolm Hulk type story, you can't get better Malcolm Hulk type story than the ones he actually wrote himself. Should we all pick a? F That's a fair comment. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. If you're I mean... gonna, should we all pick a favourite? Go on then. Can we pick a favourite? Uh... Yeah, easily. Go on then, Simon. War games, but it's not stereotypically a Malcolm Hulk story, so. Okay, pick one that he wrote by himself as a favourite. Ooh. I actually prefer Ambassadors of Death. Ambassadors of Death to Doctor and the Silurians. So I'm going to say Ambassador of Death, believe it or not. Okay, fair enough. I'm going to say Frontier in Space because I've always had a soft spot for that one. And I am going to say Invasion of the Dinosaurs with probably the Silurians as a close second. I do love Invasion of the Dinosaurs. 
Even in spite of the crappy dinosaurs. <laughs> <clears throat> or because of the crappy dinosaurs. Yeah, okay, that probably appeals to my slightly cartoony sense as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So it ticks all my boxes. <clears throat> okay, two more emails. They're both a little longer, so let's get it. Let's get to them, shall we? Yeah, got it. Um, oh, hang on. This is from uh, Richard Hogarth. He says, hey, guys. Hey, Richard. <laughs> Simon, do you want to say hello to Richard as well? Hey, Richard. Hey, I'm sure he's most very happy now. He says, hey, guys, just recently read an article and want to hear your opinions on the matter. Apparently, fans have been complaining again about the fact that the 50th anniversary special being 75 minutes. Now, I don't actually care. It could have been 45 minutes for all I care. As long as the story is fantastic, what's the problem? Plus, we are getting at least six programmes around that time to celebrate this BBC landmark. Also, we have the official BBC event, the weekend of the 50th. But our fans just venting out. Because watching my Five Doctors DVD, all it seemed we fans got was 90-minute Children in Need special and Longleat. So whilst they aren't making a two-hour movie, I feel they are making up in other aspects. And how we can, how can we go wrong with this special in 3D in cinemas? You know, that's an interesting point, isn't it? That list of all the things, not all the things, but some of the things the BBC are going to be doing in November came out a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? Yeah. And fans immediately jumped on it and said, it's not enough, it's not enough. <sighs> the 20th anniversary was better than this. Well, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, what exactly did we have in the 20th anniversary apart from the five doctors? I think there's a case of rose-tinted spectacles. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Oh, you had dear. a couple of interviews on programmes like Russell Harty and Blue Peter. Nationwide and things mm. like that. You're going to have interviews on BBC Breakfast and all that, you know, this year as well. Plus, you've got all these other other programmes on top. Do you know, do you know yeah. what? I was talking to Lee last night and we were talking about, obviously, my wedding. He was saying that there's there's an event that if it lands on the 23rd of November, that his wife might not be able to come to our wedding. And it was like, well, that's fine. And then I actually caught myself saying, but surely they wouldn't organise that on the 23rd, of, on the 50th anniversary <laughs> of Doctor Who. And I caught myself saying it. And you really. And have, what have you done? Well, I've, I've yeah, yeah done something even more special to me. <clears throat> And something nicely rescued there, Simon. Well done. Yes. Was, and something that. even more. Oh, they wouldn't do that on the fiftieth <laughs> birthday of Doctor Who. I think if they'd only said they were going to do the special and an adventure in space and time, I would have been quite happy with that. And the fact we're getting all this extra stuff, I think, is just well, somebody, icing on the cake. You know I what? think there was a picture the other day of Paul Merton and um, yeah, Ian Hislop also. Next to the TARDIS, so it looks like, as predicted by <laughs> me a long time ago, there'll be an edition of Have I Got Who For You. Yeah. Sweet. So that looks like it's in the offing. There'll be other stuff as well. This is just... Yeah, of course. Uh, it's sort of tip of the iceberg, really, isn't it? It is. And, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, it's funny you say about I've organised my wedding on the day of the 50th... Ep well, the episode's only a small chunk of it. I picked that date because it's a special date to me, not because it's the day that the special's going to be on. I can watch that any time. So there you go. And I know I've ruined it for all my Whovian fans, uh, friends, fans, fans. We're not Whovians, no. we're Doctor Who fans, Simon. Oh, don't get him started on that. Oh, what? my Lord. What's wrong with Whovian? What's wrong with that? It's man? an awful, awful word. Oh, what? It's not as bad as tricky, is it? I wouldn't use that word either. Well, no, I don't. Trekkers no. is better. Ooh. In what way? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, we're going to go halfway through Richard's email. So Richard Hargarth, he carries on. Hey again, just had a thought. While we are in the 50th anniversary, I wanted to know, have you guys ever written or thought up your own Doctor Who story? Mine would have been <clears> 11, <throat> Amy and Rory, finishing up an adventure, 11 feeling guilty about the events, bringing them back to Earth for a break. Suddenly the telephone rings on the TARDIS. 11 picks up the phone. No sound, but dust coming out from beneath the console. He answers and it's a woman who knows him and asks for his help. We learn she was a Paul McGann camp companion, cameo included, and she's now dying and weird events are happening. It would have been a two-parter and the final episode would have been called The Last Waltz. And that is the ending, Eleven and Companion dancing. And he's a die in his arms. They both get closure and he realises what an impact he makes on the companions. And uh, this gives his relationship with Amy and Rory a new life. But uh, the important thing there, I think, is the question, have you guys ever written or thought up your own Doctor Who story? Well, Simon, have you got anything to say about that? Ooh. Come on, Simon, Tem hurry up. I've tempting, given you isn't in. it? I've just written my very first Doctor Who story. Simon, I was giving you an in to advertise the publication, <laughs> not talk about the story that well, you've Well, it's supposed to be it. secret, isn't it? But I suppose we want well, as many oh, people it? reading it. Well, it is really, but yeah. Is it? You're not going to sell very many copies if it's secret, well, are you? No, because we're going to let it all let it all out when the time comes. But we have a well, secret okay, big enough. project coming linked with the Cign Cygnus Alpha fanzine that we've restarted, which is well, a yeah. big writing project, fiction and artwork. And it's being produced now. We have people involved who have written professionally for Doctor Who before. Ooh. And we have JR. <laughs> 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 and me. Ooh. Before I And we have a story written by somebody who's been in Doctor Who. Don't we, JR? Do we? Yes, we do. Oh, go on, surprise me. Well, Dan. Oh, of course. <laughs> I was trying to think of an actor then. Well, I mean, not to say that Dan's not an actor, but you know what I mean. He's playing a darling. Yeah, no, we, we have a, a big writing project, a lot of stories, all being illustrated as well. All inverted commas fan fiction, but we're doing it as professionally as we can. It's all being properly edited and... Um, it's going to be... Right, you've had your 30 seconds. Yeah. I was basically <laughs> just wanted to get you to talk about Cygnus Alpha for 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, one more email. Regarding the TV movie episode. Finally, the Blue Box podcast comes up with a bona fide scoop. I'll be sending you the dentist bill for repairs to my lower jaw after it hit the floor when JR announced that the Doctor was written as half-human because the writer wanted to celebrate himself being half-Jewish. Now, I hate to seem nitpicking, moi, but technically, I don't think you can be half Jewish, can you? If both your parents are Jewish, then you are 100% Jewish. If only your mother is Jewish, then you are still 100% Jewish. If only your father is Jewish, then you are 0% Jewish, unless you yourself self-identify as Jewish, in which case you are 100% Jewish. None of which... I think he might have a point there, Jay. He's probably right. I think the point was that if you had one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent, that's kind of the point he was trying to make in making the character half-human. Either that or you have a limb transplant from someone Jewish. <clears throat> because in spite of being half-human, the Doctor still has all the traits of a Time Lord, so he may have a human mother, but he's still 100% Time Lord. Yeah. There you go. Did I get out of that well? 
I think you're retconning now, Jay. <laughs> well, it wasn't my point in the first place. <laughs> uh, none of which detracts from the fact that it seems mildly inappropriate to associate being half Jewish with being only half human. Talking of not thinking ideas through, the thought that making the Doctor half-human would make him less scary to children in the same way that it made Spock less scary is extra virgin bobbins of the first pressing. <laughs> Spock's half-humanity... <laughs> Sorry, I like that. This is, this is Doc Whom. Yeah, oh, he's brilliant. Uh, Spock's half-humanity may have made him appear less scary than other Vulcans, but they were only scary because they all went around being disturbingly unemotional. The very most you can say about the Doctor as a 100% Time Lord is that he's very eccentrically unconventional. He's not scary, unless the very notion of being an alien is intrinsically scary. What do we imagine happens with American kids? US parent. Here is a TV character who's an alien, Jim Barb said he, wringing out the very last drop of stereotype. U.S. child. Oh no, how terrifying. Burst into tears. U.S. parent. Dry your tears, Jim Bob. Y'all know he's actually half human. U.S. child. What a relief. Now I'm not scared at all. There's no need to half-humanise the Doctor because he's not that inhuman in the first place. At least no more than some nutty professor. <clears throat> Why were you doing that with a West Country accent? You're very funny. Um, <clears throat> now, with the exception of its bilge bag territory, i.e. Voyager and Enterprise, I'm very fond of Star Trek, but we have to face up to the fact that the reason why they kept writing alien characters as half-human has little to do with making them less scary and everything to do with the frankly appalling homo sapiens supremacist bullshit which pervades Star Trek. Oh, Mr. Worf, you're having anger management issues? Let us cure you by teaching you how to be more human. What alien wouldn't want to be half-human and therefore half-perfect instead of 100% weird? All the best, Doc Whom, a.k.a. Castellan Spandex, a.k.a. Chancellor Flavorsome, a.k.a. Coordinator <laughs> Engelbert. I thought, I thought there were so many sort of humanoid, 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 it's like lemonade, but human, humanoid um, alien races so they could save money on makeup because all they had was stupid foreheads. Mm. And, I think... And then I they think... had an episode explaining that, didn't they? That the, the human seed was thrown out through the universe. Any Star Trek fans who are very annoyed at Simon's comments, please send your. I like Star Trek. Simon Brett at. That, I like Star Trek, but I just got fed up with all the. I mean, the, it all started with the Bajorans. Lumpy heads. Yeah, stupid lumpy heads. I can't stand the Klingons, though, I will say. Well, I think the lumpy heads are basically a cost saving exercise well, it's like the whole th Star Trek the whole reason it started was because Gene Roddenberry worked out a way of doing science fiction cheaply and then his yeah, idea was go. ripped off by the people who made Lost in Space from what I understand and then he made Star Trek afterwards yes ah that's interesting no no he went to a board meeting to a TV company explained how he's going to do all these sets really cheaply and before he knew it Lost in Space was being made at the same time as Star Trek I think I may be wrong on timing, but that was definitely... I think Lost in Space came out just a few months earlier. Mm. I might be wrong. Mm. They maybe appeared at the same time. Lost in Space is 66 as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, quite possibly. It was all... It's got to be around that time, I think. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I was going to come back to the point, because I don't think I made it very well in the first place. When I used the word scary, I didn't mean it as in frightening, but I meant it as in um, not easy to identify with. I think the point in Doctor Who is... Yes, although the Doctor's an alien, you need to be able to identify with him 
slightly more than you would the general alien you'd see in a space program. Yeah, I mean, you don't in Star Trek, you don't get to identify with uh, Simon. Name a species. What in Star Trek? Yeah, um, Klingon. Klingon. You don't. You're not supposed to identify with Klingons, right? You identify with the humans. Yeah. So if you present the Doctor, and remember, this is a TV movie, so this is being aimed at this audience that doesn't necessarily like English-type things. You're aiming at a mainstream American audience rather than a specialised one. If you're going to put a character right at the centre of your drama and aim it at a mainstream audience who don't even know what your programme is, let alone what the concept is behind it, making him full alien is probably going to bring them on board as having him as an identification character less than it would if you said oh it's half human mm. so you know he does have that association with earth yeah i was just thinking about the same thing with superman you know you could say why why do people identify with superman i suppose what they did by having him grow up from as a child mm. on earth that's his connection with earth and it becomes his home yeah he grows up he mm. might not be human but he grows up as a human and you can identify with his human family background yeah and you, yes, and I'm not, you know, this half-human thing, as as I say, the half-human specifically was what Matthew Jacobs brought to it, but I'm assuming that the producers of that wanted something, like you say, like Superman growing up in a normal, regular human family, something that um, general American audiences who've never heard of Doctor Who might use as an in into the character and into enjoying the programme. Mm. Well, I don't think it stopped any American fans enjoying the new series since it came back without them having to mention it. It's not watched by mainstream audiences, though. It's getting that way now. But, you know, when the series came came back, it was, you know, showing on minority channels. It's still showing on a minority channel now. Yeah. This is not... You're talking network versus pay-per-view. You know, if you're going to put Doctor Who on a network... You've got to make it work for a network audience. Mm. I mean, Doctor Who in America now. Well, surely, partly that's partly down to the companion to have that in, isn't it? Having that person to identify with—that's the idea of having the companion by his side. Yeah, uh, from an English perspective, from an American perspective, uh, culture that's been brought up on things like Star Trek, you need it at the forefront. I'm not sure I want the Doctor to be Captain Kirk. <laughs> well, no, but, you know, I'm making the distinction. I'm saying if you put Doctor Who on BBC America, then, yes, it stands every chance of becoming extremely popular with the kind of audience that's likely to look for things on BBC America or be yeah, told no, by I'd their friends. But if you're putting it on a network in front of an audience that wouldn't touch BBC America with a barge pole, you do have to make you know, one or two compromises for that audience. Mm. Mm. And, you know, maybe that's what the TV movie suffered with. But, you know, if you're going to have a TV movie that's going to get put onto an American network, you just have to accept that there will be compromises made and you have to enjoy it in spite of the compromises or disregard it. Those are your two choices, really. Mm. I think Paul McGann's great. I just think it's a pretty duff story. Hmm. Anyway, on that note, um, do we know what we're doing next week? Oh, are we doing the 
what are we? Do we have another two things? Which one are we doing? Uh, well, we've got the season six and one where we're going to choose our favourites. Ooh. Ooh, yes. So I think we'll do the one where we choose our favourites and leave season six till the week after, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, next week we're just going to be picking our favourite stories and then ripping the piss out of everybody else's favourite stories. <laughs> <laughs> out of everybody else's choices. Mm. That's going to be next week's podcast. Okay. All right. I was JR. I was Mark. And you can contact us at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. I really ought to do that more often, and we'll speak again. And you can also find us on Facebook and also on Google+. Yeah, I noticed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Google+. Plus. I'd forgotten about that. Mm. It's better than Facebook, in theory. Just, mm. I think, well, I think it is better than Facebook, but everyone's on Facebook. I think that's the problem nowadays, is now that you've got Facebook... I mean, all these other places can set themselves up at resources and they can all do it better than Facebook. But unless everybody just suddenly deserted Facebook, whatever you put up elsewhere, you're going to link to through Facebook. You might as well just do it on Facebook. Mm. Mm. There is a fairly huge Doctor Who fan community on Google. Is there? Um, Yeah, but you look at the numbers on Facebook. You look at the Doctor Who group on Facebook. How many people have liked that page? How many people are members of those groups? Do you know um, our radio show group um, for the Phonic Screwdriver has got over 300 members? And I don't think half of them... And how many of them actually listen I, I, to the I show? I think at least half of them aren't even aware it's a radio show. Probably not. <laughs> Honest truth. They probably... Is that a good thing or a bad thing? They, <laughs> yeah. they probably, you know, probably just uh, <laughs> liked it because a friend liked it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, here you go. I'm on the internet, so I've just looked up Doctor Who on Facebook. Right. How many people do you imagine are on Google Plus in this, you know, Doctor Who society thing, whatever you've talked about? Oh, I don't know. Right. Do you want to know how many people have liked this one particular group on Facebook? Go on. Given that there are many, many, many pages of a very similar nature. This one particular one is liked by 3,446,938 people. So what you're saying is we've got a little way to go to catch up. Uh, just a little. There way, aren't that yes. many Doctor Who fans. That's that's they've they've paid some blokes in India to to like it. Surely. <laughs> I watched a program about it the other day. Oh, knowing the way that Facebook I... works these days, they probably you can pay extra to have your page boosted. Yes, exactly. I don't think so necessarily. Uh, eight. This is worldwide. Hmm. I suppose, three million, I suppose. Ah, oh, good luck to them. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, the thing is, you don't have to be a paid-up card-carrying fan just to click like on Facebook, do you? This is true. So it stands to reason that a lot of these people just enjoy the programme and have clicked like hmm. and get occasional updates from the page that come up on their Facebook feed that just sort of kind of keep their interest ticking over between series. Hmm. Just, Just very quickly... Um, there was an interview with Peter Davison. Heavy, there's a heavy rumor, isn't there, about the fiftieth? But anyway, I'm not going to go in there. Um, but he was quoted as saying that he believed that Doctor Who's time on telly is finite and it will go away for a bit and then maybe come back again. Does everyone think the same? I should say so. Mm, I think so. I don't too. think it would be too surprised. I don't think it'll go away for good. No. I don't think it'll be on for good. No, I don't. 
I think it's bound. It's like a. It's like a wave now. It's bound to ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Mark, you're gonna. No, I agree. No, I agree. I think it, it's one of those things that I. It was awful when the show got cancelled back in '89. But because that I time took... you did think it was it, didn't you? Yeah, mm. I think it took that the wilderness years or whatever we want to call it for it to sort of renew itself and regenerate into what we've but got. Do you now. know what? If, th- if it went away, I wouldn't panic. No, I think that's the difference. Now, in 1989, everybody assumed it was gone for good. Mm. But if you think about the idea behind it, the conceit behind it, it's an idea that you can use in whatever time, in whatever society, with whatever your culture is doing. You can use the kernel of that idea and use it to reflect back on whatever is going on in your world at the time. Mm. So better even than Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and Robin Hood and King Arthur and all these other characters that keep getting revisited time after time after time. Doctor Who's... Inspector Gadget. (laughs) Doctor Who's a lot more current than any of them and a lot more relevant than any of them. So, you know, next time it does go off for a while. I don't think they'll even say... I don't think they'll even say, oh, cancelling Doctor Who. I think they'll just say, we're going to rest it and properly rest it. And... In resting it, I think they'll have a plan to bring it back. I think they'll say, look, let's just have three or four years without it so that when it does come back, people's interest has been piqued again, Mm. picked up again. Anyway, uh, we will speak again soon. I tell you what, the Stephen Moffat era of this show is, I mean, at the moment, people just love to bitch about it. But once they get past the point of bitching about it and they get into the point of actually analysing it and looking at it and seeing which bits work and all that kind of stuff, I think it'll be a hugely important and interesting era of the show. And I can see the innovation Stephen Moffat's made, you know, paying off in 30 years time again with this. I yeah, said this I, I'm, I'm sorry to look like... at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to look at the, uh, the RTD era a little more objectively now. Yeah. I think now that I'm sort of detached from it a lot more and sort of reappraise it a little more. And, and I, th- I think I'm, I've, I think I'm coming to terms with, with it a lot better these days than than I did perhaps during the actual era. You know, I think what happened with me was after New Earth, I think I pretty rapidly reset my mind to don't look for the stories to make sense don't look for the stories to go into areas you want to go in them in just enjoy them for what they are and you know even the Mm -hmm. end of time i find hugely enjoyable just as long as i'm not thinking about what's happening as i'm watching it that shocked you both a bit i wonder 
I know. I wonder if I could actually watch that. That's just one of those very rare, like, like Silver Nemesis is terrible, and the Time Monster, and the End of Time. Oh, I tell you what. brings it back to ten. That's about the only four stories I can think of at the top of my head that I just cannot stand watching. Of the Time Monster. Watch it with somebody who's never seen Doctor Who before. <laughs> God, why the hell would I do that? Oh, you know, I was, <laughs> we had Neil Perryman on the other week, and I said, yes. you know, when you were doing Wife in Space, what was the one story, or, you know, name a story that you had no respect for, that you changed your mind about, and that was the one he said. And yeah. exactly the same thing happened to me. We both played it to... You know, our partners who've never really had any interest in Doctor Who, never really seen much in the way of Doctor Who, and they both said how much fun it was, and we both watched it with new eyes. I don't know if I could watch it with new eyes at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it's fun enough, but it's just there's just elements of it that are just. Again, though, Time Monster, as you may come back to when you do the Barry Letts episode, is pretty important for, um, well, in two reasons. One, for seeding the idea of the pseudo-historical, because that's just a small element of that story, but I think that's the first time it kind of properly happens. And um, I can't remember what I was going to say for the other one, but... <laughs> I'm sure I'll remember um, after we've got but it, you know there's quite a lot happening in the Time Monster that you haven't really had in Doctor Who before and that you do get more and more often afterwards all the timey-wimey stuff you know that kind of stuff that's true yeah there's it, a lot uh, going on there I mean I'll probably I'll probably talk to Gary about this mm. which has kind of been you know appropriate since he worked on on the Russell T. Davies era show, but I, yeah. I, as the years go on, I see so many similarities between the Let's and the RTD era. Yeah. Uh, the eras, uh, almost, almost even more so as the years go on, and that's one of them. It just, it just, the time monster I could see being made as an RTD era type of season finale. It just has yeah. that air about it, you know what I mean? That's that feel, yeah, definitely. It's not that far removed. Crazy madcap wild. In some ways. And no, the first sort of half no. of the story is kind of the mystery on present day Earth with some timey-wimey stuff going on. And then it moves to kind of a different location for the end, which is the big dramatic, oh my God, here's history, here's myths and history, right. sort of big end of the episode kind of thing. It's a bit like Gallifrey and ancient Atlantis and mythical Time Lords, and mythical Atlanteans, and a kind of timey-wimey story with the Doctor and his arch-nemesis, and, you know, it's, it's the same thing. You it have is. A, you have a strange fixation on the underwater menace, I must say. No, no, I'm talking Time <laughs> Monster. Sorry. Time Monster. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Even yeah, yeah, still, stories, you still have a strange yeah. fixation on the underwater menace. For all the right reasons, I'll add, but... Yeah, you're probably right. I could go on about <laughs> Battlefield in the same way, and I think those three stories yeah. kind of tie together. It's kind of... Uh, yes. Mm. Battle, Battlefield, I can get behind 